So last week I concluded a, uh, a 10 part series on Wednesday nights uh, going through our statement of faith. We've been looking at uh, a series we're calling, we were calling it The Essentials. And um, we talked about just the, the, um, our, um, our articles um, or our statement of faith as a, as a, as a church, being a part of the, uh, the Evangelical Free Church of America. Uh, we are united by the same statement of faith um, with 1,600 plus churches across the United States and other uh, ministries that are tied to us um, by the thousands around the world. And it's around this statement of faith, the 10-point statement of faith, you can see our entire statement of faith on the website, um, that we gather around and celebrate around. Uh, the Evangelical Free Church has always been a denomination that, that majors on the majors, right, and minors on the minors. It, it highlights the, the importance of the essentials of the faith. And, and so we've been taking a deep dive on Wednesday nights and, and looking at um, each of the articles. And... Um, when I got to Article 2, I felt compelled by the Lord, and to be honest with you, I was kind of encouraged by a couple of people who were in the group uh, to, to bring that out on a Sunday morning um, because it is one of the most uh, important of the articles. Every one of them um, are, are critically important, but this particular one that we're going to look at this morning uh, is the most important. And, and, and the reason it's the most important is it's through this article that we come to understand the, the deity of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, the person of God, the, the nature of God. It's, it's through this uh, article that we recognize um, what salvation is and how, do we, how are we recipients of it. We learn about the Holy Spirit. We learn um, about heaven and hell and how to get to heaven and how to avoid hell. We learn about end times and, and um, all the various teachings that we see in the scripture, including uh, what our lives ought to look like as we live out our faith. Um, if you haven't figured it out yet, we're going to look at article two, and that is the word of God. Um, and it's the most important because it is the word of God that informs every area of our theology, right? It's important to understand that, that the Bible is the very, the very source of our understanding of everything we believe as Christians. If our, if our understanding of the scripture collapses, all of Christianity folds like a cheap suit. Everything we believe about God, everything we believe about man, everything we believe about eternity, where do we get that from? Certainly not tradition, certainly not just passed on down. We get it from the word of Almighty God. And so this morning, um, when, we, when we think about that, we think about uh, the, the amount of weight that we place on such a book, the Bible. And if we're putting so much weight on the Bible, we better have a confidence of knowing that what we're reading and what we're believing is true. You know, we're seeing a massive exit in the church today. Why? Because we have a long history of, 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 of drifting from the word of God. Growing churches to scratch the wishes and desires of people and not bringing the word of God. And, and as, we, as we have gener a generation that is not being taught to appreciate and dive into and live by the word of God, when, when they, they go away off of the school and they hear, you know, in higher learning institutions and they hear the Bible being questioned and ridiculed and they've not been equipped 
on why they can believe the word of God. We wonder why so many, we lose so many of our young people as they go off into school. I'm so thankful for guys like Matt and the youth, the youth team in our, in, our, in our Sunday school ministry that is really tied to, and committed to presenting the word of God, not just, not just creating a fun environment, but in talking about the importance of the word of God. And so this morning, um, we're gonna do that very thing. I want to, um, I want to equip you this morning. Uh, th- this morning is not so much about preaching as much as it is teaching. Um, some say, well, what's the difference? Well, preaching is when you're driving, right, a, a point. Um, teaching is you're pulling people in. You're, you're wanting to inform them and equip them so they can apply this in a significant way in their lives. And so um, in a day where the word of God is being diluted, uh, compromised, um, recreated, or just put aside, uh, we as God's people need to not only know the word of God, but need to know that, that there's a reason why we put all of our trust and all of our confidence in the very word of God. I want to encourage you and tell you, you don't need to check your brains at the door when it comes to embracing the word of God. There is verifiable, logical evidence that said, that, 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 um, that, that uh, demonstrates that the, the word of God is authored by God himself. And so we're gonna take a look at that this morning. And this particular article in our statement of faith um, addresses the word of God. And in, over the next number of months, we'll be, I'll be hitting different articles at different times, but really felt like this was the one I wanted to address uh, this morning. And so let me read to, to you uh, what Article 2 of our Statement of Faith is, and then we're going to kind of uh, dive into it in, in, in different ways, uh, in different sections. Uh, you'll see it on the screen above you. And again, on our website or on our app, you can see our, our entire Statement of Faith on there. And so this is number two of our Statement of Faith. And it says this, We believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in its original writings. The complete revelation of his will for salvation and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavors should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises." This is quite a weighty, a weighty statement, and I think I don't think we could take too much of a too much time on doctrine. I think doc, the word doctrine really scares people, and really it, it ought not to do that. Um, doctrine just literally means teaching, right? I, I get so crazy when people tell me, "Oh, doctrine divides." No, doctrine just means teaching, right? And so it's important that we understand the word of God and are free to embrace and not be afraid when people question the authority of the scriptures. We need to be equipped on how to uh, understand and, and view the scriptures in light of what has been revealed to us. You know, if there's gonna be an assault from the enemy on any of the articles of faith, clearly the one that would be the first point of attack would be on the very word of God for the reasons I said before. Everything we believe about God, everything we believe about eternity, everything we believe about God's plan for salvation is revealed in the word of God. And so Satan's strategy is to try and confuse us of what God has said. And you know what? His strategy hasn't changed one bit. 
He started just like that in the beginning of time when he came to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and he said, has God really said you shall not eat of the tree? He begins to question, gets them to question the very word of God. And what's interesting is what starts as a question moves into a conversation. That's very dangerous, right? Because we don't need to have a conversation about the word of God. We just need to obey the word of God. And so it should have been a very quick conversation. It should have been, yes, God said that, but no. They engaged in the conversation. And so what the devil did is he, he got them to question the word of God. He tried the same strategy with Jesus. Obviously, it didn't fail with Jesus. Right after Jesus was baptized and right before he, he went into his public ministry, he is fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And, and the enemy comes in and he begins to twist Scripture, trying to get Jesus to jump off the mountain and, 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 and do what he wanted him to do. And, and Jesus redirects and recorrects and brings, brings context to that which was being said. And so what we see the enemy doing with Adam and Eve, we see him doing it with Jesus, and we, we see him doing it all throughout humanity. He tries to get people to question the word of God. Why? He knows that if he can confuse people on what God said, then he can confuse people on what they should believe. If you're only depending upon what you hear people say that God said, you're setting yourself up for deception. It's important that you understand for yourself what God has said, and you're capable of doing that. If you're a believer in Jesus, you've accepted Christ, you have God the Holy Spirit in you, and he will show you himself. He will reveal truth to you. And so then your pastors and your teachers, they become tools in your belt. They don't become your lifeline to God. Amen? Because that was never the way God designed. You've got the Spirit of God in you. And if you'll, if you'll study the Scriptures and you'll, and you'll allow the Holy Spirit to teach you, He will lead you and guide you into all truth. And so it's the utmost important that we have a, a working and, and growing understanding of God's Word so that we would, so that we would live in the light, right? We, we want to live in the light. We want to we we walk in truth. We want to walk in the truth of God's Word. And it's also important because we want to be able to recognize a lie as well. We want to identify and know what the lies that are coming down the pike are. And the only way we can recognize a counterfeit or recognize a lie is by knowing the truth of God's word. So today we're going we're gonna to break down this article topically to, to help us understand uh, what does this article, article mean, right? And, what, and why, why can the Bible be trusted? Why, how, how can I not be afraid... When people go, oh, you can't believe that you really believe that archaic book? You know, it's been full of contradictions for years. I mean, what ought our response be? And so this morning, my hope is to, to, to equip you and encourage you to know that, you, that, that, that the, the, the scripture you hold to is verifiably authored by God himself. This, this, this article opens up with, we believe God has spoken. I like that. We believe that God has spoken. The opening statement traces its origins back to God. The Bible, see, the Bible is not the creation or the ideation of men, but it is the very word of Almighty God. And to build our confidence that it indeed is the word of God, as I said before, you don't need to check your brains at the door. There's, a, there's verifiable evidence that would substantiate that the word of God is authored by God himself. 
I mean, you've heard it said by so many, oh, it's just, it's just a book. It's outdated, right? It's irrelevant. And it's full of contradictions. It's just written by men. You've heard it? Well, I'd encourage you. It, no, it's not. There's not one contradiction in the scriptures. If, if, if somebody could disprove the Bible, as I said before, all of Christianity would have collapsed centuries ago. There are proofs, evidences, both internal evidences as well as external evidences that prove the Bible is not just a book, but finds its source and authorship in God. And it's important that every Christian understands that so that they can verifiably embrace and obey God's word as God's word. And so a couple of evidences that I want to bring to your awareness this morning. I said before, there are internal evidences. What are those? Those are evidences that we see within the scriptures that verify that there is divine authorship within the word of God. And then there are also external evidences, evidences outside of the Bible that substantiate that this is more than just an average book, but it is a divine book authored by God. So what are some of the internal evidences? Well, number one, the Bible's remarkable unity. It's an incredibly unified book from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible was written over the course of, of 1,500 years, authored by over 40 different authors that came from all various walks of life. Moses was a prince. Joshua was a soldier. Ruth was a housewife. Esther was a queen. Ezra, a scribe. Isaiah, a prophet. Job was a, a rich farmer. Amos was a poor farmer. Daniel was a prime minister. Matthew was a tax collector. Peter was a fisherman. And yet we see a remarkable unity that is woven all throughout the pages of the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. 40 different authors, 1,500 years. Imagine that for a moment. How many of you remember playing telephone when you were a kid? Right? You start, you start the phrase right over here and you get five people deep within 10 minutes and it's like in a complete obliteration of what the original author said. Well, imagine for a moment that the scripture has been written over the course of 1,500 years, 40 different authors, and it remains consistent. There's a remarkable unity from the beginning to the end of those pages of the book. Talk about the ultimate game. Of telephone. Dr. Harold Wilmington says it, places it like this. He says, let us, let us imagine a religious novel, a novel of 66 chapters, which was begun by a single writer around the 6th century AD. After the author has completed but five chapters, he suddenly dies. But during the next thousand years, until about the 6th century, about 30 amateur freelance writers feel constrained to contribute to this unfinished religious novel. Few of these authors share anything in common. They speak different languages. They live at different times and in different countries. They have totally different backgrounds, different occupations, and they write in completely different styles. Let us furthermore imagine, he says, that at the completion of the 39th chapter, the writing for some reason suddenly stops. Not one word is added from the 16th until the 20th century, 400 years. 
And then after this long delay, it begins once again with eight new authors and they add 27 new chapters. You see, you talk about the remarkable unity of the Bible. That's exactly what has happened. What began 1,500 years ago was completed at the, at, the, at the book of Revelation in about AD 90. And so we see these 40 authors from all different backgrounds, all different experiences, all different um, uh, 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 educations and, 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 and lifestyles, all presenting a unified text, not one conferring with the other. Talk about the ultimate game of telephone. The Bible is a remark. The Bible is a, is, a, is a miracle based on its remarkable unity. And again, if it could have been disproved, believe me, it would have many years ago. And so we see the remarkable unity as one of the internal evidences. Also, we see the Bible's impartiality as well. You know, the reality is, if, if I was trying to sell this Christianity thing, and I was trying to sell people on the Bible, you'd want to present the characters within the Bible in the greatest possible light, but it doesn't do that. It doesn't present them as heroes, but instead, it doesn't, it doesn't hide their humanity, it doesn't hide their failures, or it, it, it doesn't hide anything, but instead, it presents them in the rawest of form. Warts and all with all of their failures, all of their weaknesses, and all of their insecurities. We see Noah getting drunk. We see Abraham killing an Egyptian. We see David committing adultery. We see that Rahab was a prostitute, right? We see Samson was a total train wreck. We see Peter, the rock, denies the Lord. And we see the great forerunner, John the Baptist, questioning in the prison, is this really the Christ, or should we wait for another? We see the humanity of people, and yet these are the ones that Hebrews holds up as the heroes of our faith, right? They weren't heroes because they were great men and women. They were heroes because they held on to a great God, and God worked greatly through flawed men and flawed women, and we see the goodness and greatness of God in, in, in keeping those people. And so we see the Bible's impartiality, again, as a wonderful inward uh, proof. Thirdly, we see the Bible's scientific accuracy. I'm so tired, as I'm sure many of you are, of hearing people say, well, I'm not into the Bible, I'm into science. What a contradiction that really is. Despite the religious claim that one needs to choose between science or religion, the reality is that Bible confirms and even predates many scientific discoveries. I just wanna present a couple of them to you this morning. How about this one, the circle of the earth, or the fact that the earth is round. Isaiah declares, it is he who sits upon the circle of the earth. You know, while the discovery of the earth being round has been attributed to many different people over the centuries, it was declared by Isaiah about 750 BC without the need for telescopes or any satellites to present a picture. But by, because God authored this book, we see that it is he who sits upon the, the circle of the earth. Interestingly also, void of those tools, the, uh, Job the ancient, the oldest book in the Bible, was able to demonstrate that the earth was suspended in space. 
just suspended in space. Job 26 and verse seven says, he stretches out the north over the void and he hangs the earth on nothing. Doesn't that sound like God? It took centuries for people to ever come to that position because they couldn't take a picture of it. They couldn't see it from a distance. Put that in your science books. We see that God declares and demonstrates that the stars are innumerable. In Genesis chapter 15, God is speaking to Abraham and takes him outside, outside and tells him, see if you can count the stars. If you can count them, so shall your descendants be. Clearly, the, the, the idea of it is that your descendants will be forever. The stars were innumerable. Do you know that in AD 50, famous astronomer Ptolemy dogmatically declared the number of stars to be 1,056? Could you imagine? And yet God demonstrates they're innumerable. Here's another one that I love, the hydraulic cycle. Another thing that God takes ownership of declaring that wasn't discovered for centuries later. Again, Job declaring what Bernard Palisi in 1580 is credited, credited for discovering. Job writes about it in Job 26. It says he binds the, up the waters in his thick clouds and the cloud is not split open under them. He binds up the water, where? In the clouds, in the thick clouds. And the cloud is not split up, open under them. He also writes in chapter 36, in Job 36, it says, for he, he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist and rain, which the skies then pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. The oldest book of the Bible telling us you don't need to look to anybody else but the word of God to reveal the science that God has put in motion. God's word confirms science. And science, true science, confirms God's word. Also, internal evidence is the biblical claim of inspiration. Internally, the scriptures claim inspiration as well. Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, for all scripture is breathed out by God. The source is from God. It comes from God. What is? All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching and for reproof and correction and training in godliness. And so another internal evidence is the Bible's claim of inspiration. Number five, we see that there's tremendous amounts of prophetic accuracy internally within the scriptures. I mean, an entire week or month could be spent developing point after point of, with, with precision accuracy of where we see the prophets pointing to things that came to full fruition. Just looking at all the, all the prophecies regarding the first coming of Christ that we look back at now in hindsight as a, as a matter of fact, we saw that it was pro prophesied right on down to the very place in which he would live, his virgin birth, the kind of ministry he would have, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Prophecy about 
end times, prophecy about how God would deal with nations and people, and again, even, even bringing the nation of Israel back together again. We see the fulfillment within the scriptures. 500, when you think about messianic prophecies, 570 messianic prophecies, 300 of them were fulfilled just in the three years of Jesus' ministry. The chance of that happening are 26 trillion to one. They say, well, they planned it. Really? <laughs> Sometimes it takes a little bit more faith to believe a lie than it does to believe a truth. Now, those, those are just some of the internal evidences. And, and again, obviously, if we had more time, there, there are so many more internal evidences. But let's take a look at some, some external evidences. What are some things on the outside that demonstrate that, that this book that we hold, this book that we cling to, this book that we put all of our trust in, listen, for all of our eternity, by the way, right? Think about it. For all of our, you, we better get it right, right? We want to make sure that what we're believing is more than just blind faith. There are internal evidences, and what are some of the external evidences? What are some outside evidences of the authenticity of the divine authorship of the Bible? Well, number one is the Bible's indestructibility. The Bible's indestructibility. The Word of God has withstood attacks from Roman emperors, from popes and philosophers and political leaders, such as Diocletian, Pope Innocent II, Voltaire, Joseph Stalin, Stalin. I did the same thing in the first service. Stalin, like I just, I just watched Rocky the other day. The Italian, maybe Italian Stalin, right? Joseph Stalin, some who've led civil, they led civil and national efforts to destroy the Bible and, and to, to eradicate the Bible from the face of the earth and every one of them failed. Think about it. All of the greatest leaders of the day committed to, to ridding the earth of the Bible. The famous philosopher Voltaire once said, another century, and there will not be another Bible on the earth. After he died, his old printing press and the very house in which he lived was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society and was made into a depot for Bibles. <laughs> Just love the irony. Interestingly, on, on, speaking of Voltaire, on December 24th, 1933, the, the British, government bought, British government bought the Codex Synactus, which is a parchment of scripture. They bought it for a half a million dollars. On that very same day, a first edition of Voltaire's work was sold for 11 cents in the Paris bookshops. Isn't that great? Talk about the quality of his work. The indestructibility of the Bible. We knew that Isaiah declared the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the God shall stand forever. It's not ever going to stop. It's never going to go away. Psalm 119 verse 89 says, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Jesus declared in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, they will not pass away. And so we see that indestructibility is a, is a great external evidence of the authenticity of divine authorship. If it could have been removed from the earth, they didn't lack commitment, they didn't lack resources, they didn't lack enthusiasm, they lacked ability. Because God, his word is indestructible. Another external evidence is the archaeological findings that archaeological findings support the history 
that's in recorded in the scripture. Archaeology proves the accuracy of the scripture. With each new archaeological find, whether it be tablets or tools, cities, artifacts, or inscriptions, each new find validates the claims of the Bible. It's amazing. With every dig, they dig up truth. A great website, if you're interested in, in learning more about that, is biblicalarchaeology.org. And you're able to see some of the latest findings that validate the text of scripture. Another external evidence is the consistency of the text. The consistency, how it is, how it has been consistently communicated over the centuries. Between the years of 1947 and 1956, an incredible find was made. The Dead Sea Scrolls were introduced. They found these Dead Sea Scrolls in the old Qumran community. There were 11 caves in the, in, in the Qumran community out, just outside Jerusalem. And they found what was an incredible find. They, th th these, these people, this Qumran community, existed between 200 B.C. and A.D. 68. And what they found in these 11 caves was the exact Old Testament manuscripts that we are still holding to this very day. This, no, no deviation from wording or truth or anything. It is the same text that we hold. The consistency of the text over the years. It's very interesting too. I, I, just, I just find it very interesting. They found this, just as a side note, they, they, they found these, these texts in the Qumran community between 1947 and 1956. In 1948 is when Israel became a state. And it was like, it, it was just the, it, and it was the beginning of a lot of prophetic, uh, accurate, uh, pr pr prophetic, um, uh, prophecy being presented about, about the, the end time. And so just at the same time that Israel's made a state, we are, we are finding more scripture that validates divine authorship. You say, well, what did they find? They found manuscripts. What are manuscripts? Well, manuscripts are, are copies. And so they found um, over, over 15,000 um, uh, of, of various languages. They found over 5,000 Greek um, manuscripts. And so we have today over, over 20,000 manuscripts. They are copies. You say, well, well where, are the, where are the original writings? Those are called autographs. We don't have any autographs anymore because they dissipate over time. But what we do have is thousands upon thousands of these copies. And what's really incredible, a greater miracle to me than even having the autographs is having these consistent copies that have been, um, have been unaltered over the centuries. We see the, the preserving of God's word supernaturally by God. We see the consistent messaging of God's word being provided or pre being preserved for the, over the centuries for you and I to embrace external evidences of divine authorship. Now we certainly cannot rule, rule out experiential truth. Another external evidence. Obviously it's never wise to solely base one's claims on one's experience, but it cannot be ignored that anywhere people embrace the gospel and embrace Christ, their lives are changed. When communities embrace Christ, embrace Christ, communities are changed, right? People start reaching out to lost people and, 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 and meeting the needs of their community. It has the same effect that it did all the way back in the early church. And so, so we see experientially when people embrace Christianity, it has the same effect. That's why we can read through the word of God today 
and relate with everything that's been going on because things have not changed one bit. And so we recognize that there there are internal and external evidences that validate the divine authorship of God. And you don't need to feel insecure about believing the word of God. You don't need to be afraid when people question the word of God. You don't need to be afraid of finding a, a contradiction in the word of God. The moment you find what appears to be a contradiction, that's an invitation to dig a little bit deeper because there are no contradictions. If there was able to, be, if there was able to find one, the whole Christianity would have fall, folded like a cheap suit. And so we see these internal and external evidences that demonstrate that God has spoken. So that covers the first six words of our statement of faith. <laughs> so um, we're gonna be having dinner together tonight. Um, now what I wanna do is, I, now I wanna kinda now break up the rest of that article and, and give some, some definition to it. Because my guess is, for, for, for not, maybe, maybe not for everybody, but, but for some of you, when I talk about the, 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 the verbal plenary word of God, or interpretation of scripture, you might not know what that means. And so what, what does that mean? And so I wanna kinda of break down some of the, the terminology to help you to understand um, what we mean by this statement so that it can build our, our, our confidence in the truth of God's word so that when things get difficult, as Caleb said before, like you know, when, when things get hard, it's the word of God that sustains us, right? So we believe that God has spoken in the scriptures both old and New Testaments. Now, some of this might come as a tremendous reminder to, to some of you, but obviously the Bible is comprised of two testaments, the Old and New Testaments. It's, it, it is made up of 66, it is comprised of 66 books, as I said before, written by 40 different authors over the course of 1,500 years. And so when you talk about the Bible, it is not just one book, it is a, it is a culmination of 66 different books that are comprised together to, to make up the Word of God. And we have, we have two testaments that are in there. The first 39 books are the Old Testament, and then we have a period of, of silence. There's about a 400 plus year period of, of where what's known as the intertestamental period or the, or the silent years. And uh, there's a period of time where it wasn't that God wasn't speaking, it's just that it was, there was nothing being written. And the silent years were broken with the cry of a baby, right? The arrival of the Christ. And so we see then in the New Testament, starting in Matthew, going to Revelation, we see the final 27 books that comprise the entirety of the scripture. And so we have the 66 books that make up the Bible. And the question is often asked, well, how do we know we got the right 66? Because pastor, I heard about some lost books. What's up with the book of Judas and the book of Thomas and all these Gnostic gospels? How do we know they got it right? Who determined which books should be in there? It's important to note that the church did not determine which books were inspired, but rather they discovered which books were inspired. You know who determined it? God did, right? So the church did not come together and say, well, you know what? Let, you know, let's draw straws. Yeah, these will be, let's determine these as inspired. No, they did not determine, they discovered what God had inspired. Now, the Jewish community already recognized the Old Testament, which was the, the first 39 books of the Bible, as God's word. They did that in about 250 BC. 
But it was years later in a small gathering, a council, a group of people, a, time, a, a meeting called the, the Council of Carthage, where it's at that meeting that they, they discovered the other 27 books that were inspired by God. And it wasn't that those were the only books that were presented. I'm sure hundreds of books were, in, were presented, but they recognized that these were the ones that were inspired by God. You say, well, how did they discover that? Well, they brought it through some tests. They, had, they, 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 they looked at each of the writings, and, and because, listen, Paul wrote more than we have in the Bible. But not everything Paul wrote was inspired. Not everything Paul wrote is the word of God. Right, and so how did they know that what Paul wrote on Tuesday was inspired, but what Paul wrote on Thursday wasn't? Well, there were some tests that they brought through to determine that, right? Number one, they, they, the question they'd ask is, well, was the person who authored this, was, it person, was this person an apostle, or were they uh, connected close to an apostle, which was something that they would ask? Secondly, they, they'd ask, is it consistent with the books that have already been accepted? Right, so again, is, is, do we see the remarkable unity within the text that substantiates that, that God had divinely authored this? And then thirdly, the question was, was it accepted by the early church as authoritative? In other words, did the church preach and teach from this? Did they refer to these books as, as, as the authority for faith and practice? And, and some of the, that disqualified a lot of the other books and other, others got embraced and recognized as the divine authorship of God. So the 66 books that make up the Old and New Testament, they went through a rigorous scrutiny by church leaders that were being led by the Spirit to discover what was divinely authored. Not define, but to discover. Very important. So we have the Old and New Testaments written through the words of, of human authors of human authors. God used the personality, the mindset, the context, and the imperfection of men to produce a perfect text. These authors, they were not in a trance. This was not spirit writing. As a matter of fact, it's doubtful that they all knew that they were contributing to the word of God at the time of the writing. God superintended it. As Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is, is breathed out by God. This idea of being breathed out is where we get the word inspiration from in the Greek. If we were to walk outside and we were to breathe outside, we'd see our breath in the form of vapor, right? When we talk about, when we see Paul's text, all scripture is, is breathed out by God. The breath of God is the word of God. It's what comes out of the mouth of God. And it's important to note that the, that the writers were not the ones who were inspired. The text was inspired. That's why everything that Paul wrote wasn't inspired. The scripture itself was what God inspired. Sometimes the authors knew they were writing text. That was the word of God. Sometimes they did not. Number four, the verbally inspired word of God. What does that mean? The you believe in the verbally inspired word of God. This refers to the fact that not only did God inspire the overall theme of what was written, but that every word that was written in its original language was chosen by God. Every word. That's why, that's why I like the ESV as opposed to the NIV. 
The ESV will, will, will translate every single word. The NIV will do a paraphrase. I'm not saying it's a bad, it's a bad text. I just prefer a word by word because God inspired every word of the Bible. They were all handpicked by God, every word that's in there in the original language. Matthew chapter five and verse 18, Jesus said, for surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. What in the world is a jot? What in the world is a tittle? That's not going to pass away. A jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And a tittle is the smallest punctuation point in the Hebrew alphabet. And so when we, we, we recognize that, it, that God divinely inspired every letter, every punctuation point in the word of God, the scripture in its original writings, not the translations that we're reading today, in its original writings are verbally inspired by God. They are, number five, without error. They are without error. The, God, the, the, the doctrinal word is, is inerrancy. Inerrancy is a doctrine that is oftentimes under attack, even amongst professing Christians. Inerrancy simply means that the scripture in its original writing is incapable of error. It is incapable of contradicting itself. The reason it's under attack is because some people want to see scripture change to accommodate our society that changes. That's why no no pope can get up there and say it's what was okay, what was not okay on one day is now acceptable and blessed on another. Hello. And so we need to recognize that, that God's word is without error. It is incapable of contradicting itself in its original writings, which brings up to our our second point, the number six is the original writings. Obviously, the Bible was not written in English, right? We have translations. We have various translations that we all, we all use. I encourage you to use multiple translations. It's helpful, but really it's helpful to, to do word studies. There's so many tools and resources that, that I'd love to help you grow in your ability to, to understand what was the original Greek here? What was the original Hebrew? Because help, it helps us. It brings it from black and white to color when we start to look at the original language that was given to us, that, that was inspired for us. And so when we talk about the original writings being without error, it's not the original translate, not the, not the translations, because the translations are going to fall short because our English language falls short of the intent of the Greek and Hebrew. Number seven, it is complete, it is the complete revelation of his will for salvation. The word of God is the complete revelation of his will for salvation. Focusing on the word complete, meaning there is nothing added to God's plan of salvation beyond what the Bible reveals. There's nothing you can add to what God has already revealed. And that's not just referring to our, our justification. It's referring to our, our sanctification. It's referring to our, our glorification. The Bible alone is God's complete revelation of his will for salvation. Everything we need to know about getting on over to the other side is revealed in the word of God. And it does not change. And because of that, our last point, our eighth point is, it is our ultimate authority. The word of God is our ultimate authority. 
Again, looking at what Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, mature, equipped for what? For every good work. And so everything, everything man needs to know to live out this life to the glory of God is revealed for us in the pages of the scripture. Everything we need to know about what we ought to do and what we ought not to do is revealed to us in the word of God. It is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for, for, for correction and training in righteousness. And because of that, therefore, our, li- our last point is this, therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches. You can't pick and choose what parts we like. It's either the word of God or it's not the word of God. You either embrace it all or don't bother embracing any of it. It is to be believed in all that it teaches. It is not up for negotiation. It doesn't change by political opinion. It is not changing over time. His word stands forever. It is unalterable. It is to be believed in all that it teaches. It is to be obeyed in all that it requires. The only acceptable response to God's word is obedience. That's it. That's what God commands. That's why he has preserved the pages of this book for centuries. That's why nobody was able to to dispose of the word of God because if they could, then people would have to wonder what does God want? What does God say? How does God feel about it? No, we, we see it all right in the pages of the book. And listen, if God preserved it for us, then we need to obey it. We're gonna be held accountable to it, amen? We are to believe in all that it teaches, obey it in all that it requires, and then trust in all that it promises. There's no greater comfort than knowing that this, this Bible that we cling to is unchanging. And what it says about my tomorrow is true. When it talks about the fact that God loves me, then God forgives me, that God will keep me, and that Jesus is awaiting our beautiful reunion. I'm reminded that God's word does not change and it brings comfort. And so I encourage you to to be a student of the word of God. Don't be afraid to find something in the Bible that might make you question your faith. (laughs) Maybe some some people should find something that might question their faith if they're not in the faith, of course. But sometimes people are afraid to dig deep because they're afraid, well, if I find something I don't like, I might abandon this thing. Listen, if you find something, dig deeper. There's resources and people and pastors and elders and that would love to come alongside you and open up the scriptures. But there's no greater one to open the scriptures than God the Holy Spirit that is within you. That's the beautiful thing about being under the new covenant If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're born again, the spirit of God is in you. And Jesus said he will lead you and guide you into all truth. And so man, when you open up that Bible, it's like, Holy Spirit, I wanna go on a journey. Help me to see you clearer. Help me to love you more. Help my life to reflect Christ in the world around me. And God, the Holy Spirit, 
can open up the pages of, those, of that book far greater than any man could ever do. And that's available to each and every one of God's people. Father, thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path as the psalmist declares. God, I pray that in these days ahead that you would give us a greater hunger for the word of God. Lord, that you'd give us a greater um, uh, desire to, to dig deep and apply your word to our lives so that we might see you through the lenses of the scripture so that we might love you more, so that we might serve you better and that we might reflect Jesus greater in the world around us. We thank you, we praise you. In Christ's name we pray, amen, amen.